When saying um, yes to you guys and to God and coming here to Petaluma about a year ago from the East Coast, one of the promises I made to my wife Katie was that we would take time every year to see each of our families uh, back east, back on the East Coast. And we recognized that we were very fortunate, that we're blessed, we're fortunate to have uh, two families, I don't know not everyone has that, who, who, who love each other, who want to spend time together, e- even while all of us are together, like, t- like intentionally wanting to get everyone together, um, to get reacquainted, to know each other better, cousins, uncles, aunts, all those sorts of things. And that's no small feat, especially with Katie's crew of over 40 people, 40 family members, um, all together under one roof. That's right, that's the right response, whoever said that. Um, it's amazing. Um, so, but when you see certain persons, right, only like once a year, or, or barely any more, you, you, you think of the questions you're going to ask them, and they're usually questions like, hey, what's been going on? What's new? Or you ask them about certain transitions they've experienced since the last time you, you've seen them, like a hey, new job, new child, a new house, new city, right? So I'm anticipating this because people are going to ask us about California, about the church, about where we live. And so I, I started to, to sort of catalog a list of facts in my mind and, and some sound bites that I could go through when people ask me about it. But I was impressed. You know, my sister, whenever we've gotten together, she usually has had a different tack. She once used this, this very different approach. We were on a walk, and she said to me, so brother. And I could tell she's trying to think of a good question. So out of a sense of exhaustion, she asks or says to me, brother, tell me a good story. All right, now she's a grown woman at this point. Tell me a good story is not exactly a good prop that I teased back. I said, I said, no way, that's not even a question. That's one of the laziest social attempts I've ever heard. Tell me a good story. What am I, like a, a circus or something? I'm your entertainment. But her approach, I thought, in retrospect, is actually a pretty wise one. When we ask for a good story, what we're asking is to really hear the heart of an author, because whatever someone chooses to tell you reflects something that's very important to them. It reveals these gems. What deep down is important to someone, right? They're choosing what to share with you, what story, what's important to them, and they're communicating it with you. So I've heard people ask before, why doesn't God write down his story the Bible? Why is it written more like a, something like a concordance that it's organized by topic and question, right? Here's the topic. Here's the question. What's God's response to each topic, each question, this systematic sort of book that we could just go through and get the answer straight. Instead, God uses approximately 40 different human authors from prophets to government workers to fig farmers to write histories, compose poetry, record eyewitness biographies, all into this one big story. And, and the reason it's against the background, against family lines, long family lines, uh, uh, descriptions of landscapes, occasional victories, like horrible mistakes, and the everyday mess of life is because out of those things, we can see the gems of what really matters to God. Because every day, we hear stories. And out of those stories, something more poignant, something more beautiful is reflected against those everyday backgrounds, right? 
So God is wise in the way that he composes his story, what matters to him, against the background of similar stories. Now, David Arms is a gifted artist who designed this, this panel behind me on the screen called God's Story, which we're going to use as a storyboard for the next six weeks. With visual richness, it describes a story laid out for us in the Bible. Sometimes the story is described as creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Sometimes it's described more simply as creation, fall, grace, glory. I've decided to even distill it more simply without any sort of pseudo-religious terms. Creation, or sorry, it's called good, bad, new, and perfect. And this is a brief description of God's story as expressed to us in his word. On the far left, you're going to see good. Three chickadees are there, right? Whose cheerful disposition represent Adam and Eve and all of creation, singing God's praises. That bright red apple represents both God's provision and his one prohibition. And at this point, God's story, everything is good. Next to that, moving to the right, you see bad. It's darker, right? These ashen hues underscore the the polluting and destructive result of sin in this world. Grating, chaotic screeches of crows replace the singing chickadees, right? And there's a dead tree in the middle, which you know has to be bad. Now, unpictured, but part of our story is this interlude between the bad and the new, And that it's just this time of striving towards God, but always failing to meet Him. We'll talk about that as well. Third from the left is new. The three butterflies represent life coming from death. Their playful fluttering suggests uh, freedom. There's no ordinary tree in the middle. We just see a cross as well as an egg representing uh, resurrection. Now, unpictured, but also part of our story is another interlude, and that is the interlude from new to perfect. It's a time of constant tension. It's actually the time we live in right now. And we'll talk about that part of the story as well. And finally, act four of the story is perfect. Perfect, and you'll see up there in the final pain, fruits abundant, which represent eternal life and bliss, and a tree that's even fuller than the tree of creation and a diverse group of birds, birds who look different from each other, all together in perfection. A good story. Tell me a good story is a wise approach for a conversation for a second reason, because the best stories find a way to include the listeners, even if they weren't there at the time the action takes place, right? Good story. The best stories reveal, teach, guide, illuminate, even if they don't intend to, even if they don't tell us explicitly to. A sister-in-law, a sister-in-law of mine uh, is an immigrant to this country from the Southern Hemisphere, and she was sharing with me a story this past Friday. A story about a time she and her husband, uh, her white husband from Montana, <laughs> were on the way to a comedy performance in their city, and they're on their city's transit. And they're standing there, and, and, and they get to the station where they get off. We're supposed to get off to go to this performance. And in between them and the door, though, is an immigration officer, a uniform immigration officer, an ICE officer. Her husband just moves to the door and actually kind of uses his arm to kind of get the officer out of the way, not thinking anything of it. 
to get through the door. And meanwhile, his wife is frozen. She doesn't move. He looks back, he's confused. He's kind of growing frustrated, motioning to her, why are you coming? Well, later she explains to him that even though she is here legally, she identifies as an immigrant. And as such, the fear is very real for her when she sees a uniformed officer, given what, it, what had kind of taken place in a, to immigrants a number of years ago. Okay? Now, as she's telling this story, at the end of it, she didn't ask me a question. She didn't tell me to do anything. But I had been invited into the story nonetheless. My, my prejudices and my own heart had been revealed my appreciation for her grew, and my compassion was enlarged. All of a sudden, I was in the story playing a role also, right? As she's sharing this with me. And that's what God's story does. It invites us to play a role. And that's what we're calling this series in the next six weeks, My Role in God's Story. It invites us to play a role in the story, even though God's Word doesn't always ask us to do so explicitly. It doesn't say, do this or do that. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Act 1 of God's story, Good. The story of God's good creation, Good. So find a Bible, if you will, and open to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you uh, underneath the seat in front of you, uh, the seat you're sitting on right now. We have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please keep this Bible for yourself as a gift to you. Genesis chapter 1, good news is it's the very beginning of the Bible, so it's not hard to find. Well, this this uh, Genesis 1 and 2 that we're going to read invites us to be actors, truly act in the story, and flourish in the role God gives us, even though it doesn't explicitly ask anything of us, because it's one of those great stories, one of those best stories, and I love that. So read with me, starting in Genesis 1, we're going to read verses 1 to 5 to start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw, God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, the next five days proceed along similar lines. I'm going to summarize them for us. Day two, we get precipitation. God speaks about water above the earth, water beneath the earth. Day three, we get land, which separates, uh, separated from the sea, plants, flowers, uh, trees are created, all those things. Day four, our solar system, we get the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, the sea and sky animals, and God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Day six starts out similarly. We get the land animals, and God saw that it was good. Day six isn't over. Read with me, starting in uh, verse 26 of chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. Every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. 
to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on that seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for the food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we get a description of the four rivers of the garden. Skip with me to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day, the day you uh, eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It will, uh, I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them or name them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had made from the man, uh, from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said... This at last is the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. and They shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. So we get here. This is act one of God's big story. The good story. The story of God's good creation. And if you read it, you might have noticed it acts kind of reads like two stories, doesn't it? Chapter 2 repeats a lot of the same stuff that chapter 1 said, right? And if you notice this, you would not be alone in noticing this. Nearly all the Christians of the early church noticed this too. One guy named Augustine back in the 4th century was one of the most uh, famous people who noticed this and said something interesting about it. He noted that chapter 1 was like creation in the mind of God, whereas uh, chapter 2 is like creation in time and space. And I would say something similar to that, that it's like creation from two different camera angles. You know how when you watch a big sporting event now, like a big football or basketball game, you can actually sometimes tune into two different channels and watch them from two different uh, camera angles. You can watch them from the ground, and sometimes they have this like above camera, above the rim camera, above whatever it might be, right? And you can watch the whole game from one of those two angles. Well, that's what we get here in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 
one, chapter one is heaven cam, if you will. Chapter two is like earth cam. And that's really good of God that he does this. Chapter two, you get the details about Adam and Eve, uh, what their digs looked like, their day-to-day responsibilities in caring for this garden, right? The stuff of life that we typically see as we live, but heaven, chapter one, it's a little more mysterious because it's from God's perspective. We're getting this from heaven, Cam. God is saying this while in heaven, commanding from on high. And the writing actually reflects this. If you were getting the Hebrew of the writing, chapter two reads like a straight story, right? You feel like you're there. Whereas chapter one is written in something called exalted prose, which is like elements of a story and poetry, story and song together. And if you know the story of uh, the book went into a play called uh, Les Miserables, anyone hear this story? It's fun to say because it's French and you sound kind of fancy when you say it, right? Les Mis, right? It's fun to say. There's been two films, famous films made into this, one more recently of of Les Mis. Uh, That was one starring uh, uh, Hugh Grant, or not Hugh Grant, (laughs) Hugh Jackman, uh, Anne Hathaway, uh, Russell Crowe, but there's actually one from the 90s that did not involve music at all. And that starred uh, Liam Neeson, Claire Danes, among others, all right? Well, my family tends to not like musicals, all right? Don't judge me for that. But we watched the narrative version a few weeks ago, all right? It was wonderful. And you can comprehend everything from a human point of view. You get everything, but you kind of miss the grandeur and the feeling of all those songs of the revolution and all this stuff, right? Chapter one, right, of Genesis gives us some of that grandeur, that feeling. That's what the musical did. The musical version, we, or at least I, I didn't get everything going on in the story. But what I did sense was was the heart and the feeling, the gravitas behind it. That's similar to Genesis chapter one. It's God's heart, his gravitas, his feeling behind creation. We often come to chapter one with questions about how God created things. Like, did he use an evolutionary process behind all of creation? Was there a big bang? But Genesis 1 isn't written to address all the details of how, right? It's meant to give us the grandeur and the feeling behind it. So we need to take care not to press Genesis chapter one for all those details for what we want to know. It was not written to give us that. Like a musical, it's meant to help us sense the grandeur and the, the, the feeling behind it all. Chapter 1 helps us get to the question of why God created all of this. So let's start with that question as the first part of God's story. Why? Why did God create? Why did he create human beings? Some people think he created human beings simply because he was bored. Maybe he was lonely right up there in heaven all by himself. Or maybe he just wanted man to do all the dirty work he didn't want to do. We'll come back to that in a minute. But this first chapter of Genesis actually tells us why God created man. Verse 26 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now what's going on here? Why is God saying us and our image? Well, some Jewish scholars say that he's actually speaking to the angels. He's taking counsel with them. But God does not take counsel with anyone. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us this. God does not take counsel. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 40 
says God does not take counsel with anyone else. But our answer is found in the first few verses. It says here that God created. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, for each created thing, a a word detonates the act of creation. And in John chapter 1, John tells us that word back in Genesis 1 was Jesus. And so you have God creating, the Spirit of God there, and Jesus there. So we're immediately told something about God, that he is a community. He wasn't lonely or bored at creation. No, no, no. He's an eternally loving, honoring, mutually celebrating community. Uh, Sort of like one of these roundabouts, right? You see roundabouts in our cities now. Instead of having these lights with intersections. It's like a roundabout with three intersections, right? All this love coming together, mutual honor, mutual love towards one another, being poured out in three different directions, all shared together. In verse 26, you see this heavenly conversation of let's expand the circle. Let's expand the roundabout. Let's add another intersection. Let's make man to share in this love. It's just an overflow of love that leads to the creation of human beings. He doesn't want us to miss the imitation of this free-flowing roundabout in love and community. So he says, he hints, hey, let's make man in our image. Hey, guys down there, there is an hour, there is a community of love that you might be invited into. So that means the first invitation extended to you and I into this divine community of love requires only a look in the mirror. If you look in the mirror, that's your first invitation in this community of love that God gives you because you see God's image when you look in a mirror. God has built into us an invitation, an invite. And it's beautiful to him. That's why that's what separates us from the animals. That's why only after creating humanity, God says in verse 31 that it was very good. Not just good, very good. In the beginning of chapter 2, he says he felt like he could rest finished with his creation because he invited us into this love community. So God seems to be saying two things by putting his image into us. Don't miss the invitation into community with me that I've given you, but also don't miss the invitation into community with others made in the same image. I've invited everyone into this love relationship, this, this circle of love this roundabout of love. And that gets to our first role in God's story of creation. What's my first role in creation? What's my first role in in the good? Value God's image in every person. Value God's image in every person. First in yourself, because no matter how bad things go or how badly you mess things up, how royally you mess things up, you can look in the mirror. And there... You can see that God has given you his qualities right there, but in lesser degree. For example, we can know things and and intuitively make estimates. God knows everything, but we can know some things. We can make estimates intuitively. We can remember things. We can solve problems. Uh, We can express creativity. We can communicate with one another. And we have the capacity to do what's right, not just what's instinctive like the animal's. That's what an image bearer looks like. And all of it's designed to say, hey, you belong with me, with us and community. Just right here. Second, we're meant to to value God's image in others. 
especially those unlike us, but also those like us. Eve looked different from Adam, but it was also similar to him in some ways, right? She was like him and looked like him in some ways, right? Nose, mouth, ears, eyes, but also unlike him in some ways, right? As we move down from the head. So Adam wakes up from this deep sleep and immediately values the sameness, but also the differentness in this person God has created. And this sameness and difference causes man to create the first song in all of human history and to sing it out loud. This is the last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The first act of joyous songs because Adam notices, ah, someone who's the same as me. Ah, someone who's different than me. And it's beautiful to him. Have you ever woken up next to someone you don't know? Well, maybe some of you have, but that's not really what I'm talking about here, okay? There's grace for that. But I was on a trip to New Orleans once, um, helping do some repair work after uh, Hurricane Katrina in the Ninth Ward there in New Orleans. And we're, we had uh, just finished cleaning up this property, and uh, it was so tiring that I actually fell asleep in a lawn chair sitting right there on the porch. And the rest of my team went on the other side of the building we had been working on to, to view another property. So out of my view, I couldn't see them. Well, I woke up, and the only other persons around me were, were five feet away, these two big dudes who looked very different from me, okay? And they're just staring at me. I mean, just staring at me. And it's a challenge, isn't it, when we're in those moments? We don't want to fear, but we kind of do. When we're surprised to meet someone unlike me, we get a lesson here from Genesis 1 and 2, which is we we can choose to value first their likeness which can then help me embrace their not-likeness, their difference, right? These people in front of me, these two dudes, eyes, ears, mouth, nose, right? Sameness. I can value that. I can see that. But also appreciate, hey, they have a different melanin than me. And that's beautiful too, right? We can do this because you all bear the same image and we're invited into the same community with God. That's our first role in creation, to value that in others. Second role in creation is this, the delight in redwoods and blackberries. Now, in the beginning, God created, and the Hebrew word used here for created is a word only ever used of God. It's never used of human beings, because only God created something out of nothing, what theologians often call creation ex nihilo, creating something out of nothing. It was a radical idea to create something out of nothing at the time, in the ancient Near East. In all other ancient Near East mythology, gods would always create out of something. All right, so you can read this ancient literature about this. They create out of something, for example, the blood of a slain god, uh, the slaughter of a sea monster, uh, or some sort of primordial ooze, whereas our God creates ex nihilo. And that's really crucial because it means that nothing he created is made out of anything bad. Everything is good. He has created. So he says, I've given you every plant, every tree for food. Chapter 2, verse 9, each of those things is pleasant to the sight and good for food, which is why I've chosen redwoods and blackberry bushes, which we have on our property. They're beautiful, pleasant to the sight, good for food. Well, at least the blackberry bushes. I don't recommend eating redwoods, but you know what I'm saying. Chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden. 
God's first command is to freely eat. Do you know what the last commandment is in the Bible? Revelation 22, verse 17, drink freely. The bookend commandments of the Bible then are eat freely and drink freely, which means everything in the middle is supposed to be a banquet to be enjoyed. But it's hard for some of us to do that. Some of us who've grown up religious or just religiously self-disciplined. The world is bad. Our bodies are bad. That must mean enjoying things are bad. Some of us grew up hearing that and we have had a hard time separating ourselves from that. And yet God created the world He created our bodies and will one day redeem them and keep them around. We're not going to become spirits or ghosts if you know Jesus. We're meant to enjoy his creation. It's interesting and telling that all of Jesus' parables, most all of them betray an intimate knowledge with the ordinary and enjoyable of God's creation, right? Farming, fishing, uh, flowers, fowl. These are the things of his parables, uh, baking, uh, traveling, money, upper management, HR issues. These are the things of which Jesus talks about to which you might counter. But yeah, he also healed the sick, preached the good news, and he died giving, ourselves, giving himself for us all. And we should die for others also. But that's the tension we should feel between chapter one of God's story, act one, and act three of God's story is this, this tension between the good and the new, creation and redemption. We should all feel this tension because we don't want our lives to tip too far into one side or the other. On the one hand, being super spiritual, denying ourselves constantly, preaching the good, to other, good news to others. That's all we do. We read the Bible and that's why people have monasteries and things like that because they, they overdid it. Nor the other side, right? Over indulging, over loving, over desiring the created things, people, money, power, sex, food, drink, what's pleasing to the eye and good to the taste, right? Not tipping over on that side either. In the Bible, the New Testament actually helps give us a good word on that tension between these two aspects of God's story. God used a man named Paul to plant a church in a place called Ephesus. And Paul left his good friend Timothy behind to pastor this church. The church of Ephesus got so into Jesus that they actually burned all their books about magic from the past. They got so into serving Jesus that they said, hey, let's do only super spiritual things, like denying ourselves, preaching the good news, and don't taste actually really good food. In fact, don't even have sex. We should treat sex as a bad thing, even among married couples. Well, God had a word through Paul. He said this, 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. It's up here on the screen. Some forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now this word can help us in two different ways. It can help us, prevent us from overindulging in beauty and taste and redwoods and blackberry bushes, right? And foods and sex with our spouse even. Because they will provide us with decreasing pleasure, which is why we're always looking for more beauty, for bigger taste. We're trying to find that next bigger, better thing. But what do we experience? The law of diminishing returns when we do. Because when we indulge in those things, they give us less back. But if we delight in those same things I just mentioned, 
while thanking, expressing gratitude to our Creator, we are filled by Him who can literally fulfill us. He's the only one who can really fulfill us. And He can use those things to do it as we thank Him for them. That means we can enjoy these things without shame, delight without guilt, as we express gratitude to our Creator who made them. Does that make sense? You you can't have one without the other. You can't experience constant joy in all of creation without thanking the one who created them also. Otherwise, you won't get out of them what you hope to. You never will. But also, there's a second thing we can learn from these verses. When it says, nothing to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. If we can no longer thank our Creator for the third hour of television, right? The third cocktail that we've had, right? The third scoop of ice cream. If we can't say, oh, thank you, Lord, for this third scoop, this third, uh, this third container, this pint of Ben and Jerry's, right? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. It starts to feel weird. Thank you, God, for this third hour of television I've been watching. It may be time to put down the spoon, right? And look to our Redeemer for help to fulfill us. And so you see this, this, these verses create a kind of litmus test. If we can continue to thank God for creation, for what he's created, we can continue to enjoy it as a good thing. Otherwise, put down the spoon and ask Jesus for help. All right, my third role in creation is this. Collaborate with created stuff. We're called to collaborate with created stuff. If you notice from Earth Cam, God is not afraid to get his hands dirty when creating us. God, he gets in the dirt to form man. Now, other societies in the ancient Near East work was tremendously frowned upon. If you look at the literature, in every ancient Near Eastern creation story, God's created humans to do the dirty work so they didn't have to. But this story is very different. God gets in the dirt and he calls man to do likewise. He puts him in the garden he planted in order to, quote, work it and to keep it. Chapter 2, verse 15. Those two words in the Hebrew suggest collaboration, cultivating and using on the one hand, and yet conserving and guarding on the one hand, working it and keeping it. Earth is meant to be tamed, pruned, utilized. We hear, have dominion over it, subdue it in a way that conserves the earth, but doesn't preserve the earth, right? Pickles are meant to be preserved. The earth is not meant to be pickled. All right, friends, it's not. God didn't tell Adam and Eve, that didn't set up the garden and put plastic over it and tell them, hey guys, look, I've left this place pristine. Don't touch anything. He didn't do that, did he? He said, no, no, get involved. Touch stuff. Enhance stuff. Work at it. And that's what collaboration is here in the garden now in our day. Now is use the created stuff that God has made to enhance the garden, to benefit humanity and glorify God. God meant for us to spend our lives working and collaborating. In fact, we see two different types of collaboration here in Genesis 1 and 2, and that carry on, carries on in our world today. The first is gardening. The second is naming. Gardeners are those who use the stuff of creation to make something beautiful and new. These are chefs. These are artists. These are stylists. These are legislators who produce laws. These are people who produce wealth Money managers, maybe, stockbrokers who use it for good. These are chemists. These are entrepreneurs. Such are gardeners. We are meant to be those kind of people. But there's a second kind of collaboration. Those are namers. We see Adam do this kind of work as well, right? 
he organizes and gives dignity to creation by naming and organizing them. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. So parents who are our first instructors, teachers who carry on the wonder of creation and tell us what everything is, accountants, yes, you accountants, you help us organize and make sense of what we've used. Doctors who diagnose, lawyers who organize and make sense of laws. It's no surprise then the Holy Spirit and the New Testament gives us two categories of gifts to use in the church, and they are word gifts and work gifts, namers and gardeners. We get to be subcontractors in God's creation process. We saw earlier we cannot create anything new. We can take raw materials that he's given us and collaborate with his creation. I want to make one final observation before I finish this morning because it's a lot to take in. Here in Genesis, God create, uh, commands humans in chapter 1, verse 26, to subdue the earth, have dominion over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Subdue, have dominion over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But because of this other tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we now find subduing, we find working very frustrating, don't we? Little we do goes right. We feel we should provide order to what's around us, but at the end we just feel powerless oftentimes at our work. Well, there's good news ahead. There's another Adam, his name is Jesus, who arrives on the scene and says something so similar about creeping things to his disciples. Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says it's up here on the screen. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Notice, creeping things. I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. Jesus is giving back to us the authority we had at first. So if you really want to flourish as a true actor and participant in God's story of creation, I must invite you to also get to know Jesus who restores in us a power to subdue what he's created. He restores in us the perfect image of God and he helps us delight in everything God's created because it is only a hint of eternity and perfection to come with him. Let's pray. Father, I recognize there's a lot to take in in an opening sermon to a new series here. A lot to take in from Genesis 1 and 2, but there is so much to learn. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us with just one takeaway this morning, whether that is for some of us really valuing your image in every person, starting with ourselves, but in others, especially those different from us. Help us value that image, that invitation into community with you and community with others. For some of us that take home, I pray you would uh, impress on our hearts would be de delighting in redwoods and blackberries and the goodness of all you've created without overindulging in it, delighting in it while thanking the creator who made it so we can enjoy all that you've made while also acknowledging the one who made it. And finally, Father, I pray for those um, who needed to hear that you want us to collaborate with all the created stuff that you've made. Some of us forget that work is what we're designed to do. It's not just a hassle. And that by doing the work you've assigned to us, we are namers and we are gardeners. We are doing your intention for us. And that through Jesus, we can, we can truly do it with power. And so I pray in all these things, we do it and find the Lord Jesus through them who wants to redeem creation.
and redeem everything we do with it. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.